We know their names, but how well do we really understand the women of the New Testament? What if we could get to know them, like friends? How might that impact the way we read Scripture and the way we live our lives? Elizabeth, Lydia, Mary, Priscilla, Sapphira. Well, you're going to meet them all up close in just a few minutes. Hey, welcome to The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger with noted Middle East expert Dr. Charlie Dyer, and we call our weekly get-together a flyover of the Middle East. But you never even need to leave your favorite chair to experience it. Isn't that right, Charlie? Uh, That's exactly right, John, because uh, we'll do it for them. And uh, it's so much fun being back with you today. (laughs) All right. We'll start with current events. If you're new to the program, our first segment is always devoted to a look at the headlines coming out of the Middle East, including this story. Israel's new government is already facing its first challenges, including the nuclear threat posed by Iran. What's the latest on that conflict and how is the new government responding? Well, you know, the conflict with Iran continues to simmer. Uh, Iran has been dragging its heels in terms of re-entering the nuclear agreement with the U.S. Part of the reason for the delay is supposedly to allow their new president to take office in August. But that's likely just an excuse they're using to continue building up their stockpile of enriched uranium and to move forward on other aspects of their nuclear program, they think, without fear of attack. Iran's new president, Ibrahim Raisi is a hardline supporter of the Islamic Revolution who, as a prosecutor, helped send an estimated 5,000 prisoners to the gallows Hmm. back at the start of the revolution in 1988. He's the most violent leader in Iran since Ayatollah Khomeini, and he'll do everything possible to advance the goals of the Islamic Revolution. Uh, That could include bringing about a worldwide conflagration to usher in the return of the Mahdi, the Shiite Messiah. U.S. Secretary of State Blinken has said it's unclear whether Iran is ready to comply with the nuclear agreement, though the U.S. is still indirectly negotiating toward that end. Now, Israel opposes the agreement since it would allow Iran to legally possess nuclear weapons in just a few years. And that's assuming they don't cheat and try to push forward with a secret program, which is something they were caught doing before. The new government in Israel is trying to work quietly behind the scenes to influence President Biden to take a stronger stance toward Iran. They're also continuing their efforts to sabotage Iran's nuclear program, with several apparent incidents taking place just this past week. Hmm. But the question that remains unanswered is, what will the new government do if the U.S. agrees to re-enter the nuclear deal with Iran on terms that Israel finds unacceptable? Will they bow to U.S. pressure or Will they act alone to launch an attack on Iran's nuclear facilities if they're convinced Iran is close to having an atomic weapon? President Biden has assured Israel's new leaders that he won't allow Iran to do that while he's president. But are Israel's new leaders strong enough to stand against the U.S. if it comes to that? They've said they'll do what's in Israel's best interests, but they've not yet been tested. Bennett and Lapid criticized Netanyahu for his handling of the relationship with the U.S., but they may find that the situation looks much different when they're responsible for making decisions that impact both the safety and security of their people, as well as their long-term relationship with their major ally. Charlie, just for a moment, let's uh, pretend a scenario in which the long-term conversation between the U.S. and uh, Iran amounts to nothing more than talk. There's no teeth in it. Do you foresee a scenario, any scenario, in which Israel might respond militarily against uh, Iran's nuclear development? Uh, John, I think we have history to look at for that. Uh, When Iraq was developing a nuclear reactor, 
Israel flew over and attacked it and destroyed that because it stopped Saddam Hussein's nuclear program. When Syria was building a nuclear reactor and President Bush uh, refused to take action, Israel went in and attacked that nuclear facility and destroyed it. Uh, So I think Israel has shown that it will take whatever decision it needs, even if it's against what the U.S. would like Hmm. uh, to protect their citizens. Well, the other challenge facing the Bennett-Lapid government is internal, a potential resurgence of COVID coupled with threats to the coalition itself. How are they dealing with both of these internal threats? Uh, The COVID threat isn't quite as serious as it was last year, but they're still concerned. Israel went from a handful of new cases to hundreds of new cases in a matter of weeks, and most of them can be traced to the arrival of the so-called Delta variant of COVID. Uh, The good news is that those who are vaccinated seem to be protected, though the vaccines are only proving to be about 64% effective against this new strain of the virus. The bigger problem is that most children and young adults have yet to be vaccinated, and they're the ones coming down with the virus, and they've been transmitting it to their peers in school and to other unvaccinated family members. The new government reimposed its outdoor mask mandate, and they postponed opening the country to unlimited tourism until at least August. They've also threatened to close down the airport should the numbers rise dramatically, though the hope is that won't be necessary. So far, the government seems to be doing a reasonable job of keeping COVID under control, and most Israelis are willing to follow the new guidelines. The second problem facing the new coalition, though, is uh, really different. It's total different national issues that threaten to divide the coalition along ideological lines. Mm. Uh, The first of these dealt with an unauthorized Jewish settlement. Bennett's party would historically back the settlers, but that would be opposed by the left-wing Jewish parties in the coalition and the Arab Ra'am party. If he agreed to dismantle the settlement, he'd, he'd be viewed as a turncoat by the Israeli right, including members of his own party. In the end, the government was able to reach a compromise with the settlers that had them evacuate the settlement. In return, the government promised to legalize the settlement in the future if the land is found not to belong to Palestinians. Uh, That crisis was followed immediately by a vote on extending an Israeli citizenship law that denies automatic citizenship to Palestinians who marry Israeli Arabs. In an embarrassing move, one member of Bennett's own party voted against a compromise, and two members of the Arab party in his coalition abstained. As a result, the vote failed to pass in its first attempt. These are just the first of of many issues on the horizon that will test whether this broad coalition can survive the political divides that are a very real part of its makeup. Our program is called The Land and the Book. Dr. Charlie Dyer, noted Middle East scholar, is walking us through a list of current events, which you've been seeing online and on television this week. Lower Galilee has vanished. Well, at least the official name has. Charlie, what exactly was Lower Galilee? I, I, I ran into that term and was never quite sure myself. Why has the name been changed? In the time of Jesus, Galilee was divided into two distinct geographical areas. In fact, Josephus identifies them and called them Lower Galilee and Upper Galilee. So the names have been around for at least 2,000 years. But with apologies to William Shakespeare, you know, when Juliet said to Romeo, what's in a name? A rose by any other name will smell as sweet. Well, apparently she didn't realize that some names like Lower Galilee are a problem. Now, here, here's the problem. In, in Hebrew, the name Lower Galilee is Galil Takton. Uh, but today, the word Takton is used to refer to underwear and the human backside. And it's also used to describe something that's inferior or at the bottom end of a scale. So uh, it'd be like someone today saying, you know, well, we have a great lake named Lake Superior. We should name one of the southern ones Lake Inferior. 
you know, that wouldn't have quite caught on like Lake Erie or Lake Michigan did. Right. Anyway, the people in that region held a contest to determine possible new names for their region, and they voted on the four most popular options. Uh, the winner of the contest ended up being Sha'ar Hagalil, which sounds pretty nice, and in Hebrew means gateway to the Galilee. Mm-hmm. Now, that does sound regal, and uh, the region has historically served as a gateway for north, south, and east-west travel, so it seems appropriate. But, you know, John, it's going to be hard to erase 2,000 years of history. Uh, I'll try to remember the new name, but I've taught <laughs> historical geography for decades, and it's always been Lower Galilee to me. So, Hopefully, we'll be able to add this new name to our vocabulary. All right. Well, we'll test you on it on the next tour. A new Israeli GPS nanodrug claims to be able to bust inflammation without suppressing healthy immune cells. How exactly does this new innovation from Amazing Israel actually work? Uh, this new innovation is actually a further development of the technology that produced the Pfizer and Moderna COVID drugs. Developed at Tel Aviv University, this new method uses RNA-based drugs in special nanoparticles, allowing them to bind to receptors on cells where there's inflammation. The drug's delivery system knows how to bind to receptors only on immune cells that are inflamed and to skip over other identical cells that don't have inflammation. Uh, The treatment could potentially replace today's therapeutic antibodies that circulate around the whole body after being administered, taking antibodies to all T-cells. The current approach reduces the functionality of all the body's T-cells to stop some from causing inflammation. Uh, Instead of suppressing the entire body's immune system, this new approach will target only the cells that are causing the problem. The researcher described the approach as being a game changer, and he compared it to GPS by saying it will take the drugs to exactly the right address, the right cells in the body, where they're needed, without impacting others. A technology that could someday deliver medicine to those cells needing it without harming healthy cells. You know, John, that's the kind of innovation we've come to expect from Amazing Israel. Charlie, I'm looking forward to a conversation on women of the New Testament. That's next, but later on in the broadcast, your devotional, where's that going? We're going to head to Bethany and look at John 11, where we find God is always right on time. I'll look forward to that, plus answers to your questions and a whole lot more on today's edition of The Land and the Book. But again, straight ahead, we know their names, but how well do we really understand the women of the New Testament? That's up next on The Land and the Book. We read their names, we've heard their stories, but how well do we really know the women of the New Testament? What if we could get to know them, almost like friends? How might that impact the way we read Scripture and the way we live our lives? Hey, welcome back to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. I'm John Geiger saying thanks for spending part of your day with us. We're about to meet some key women of the New Testament but I'm guessing you've already met a Jewish friend or neighbor who needs to hear about Yeshua. So what's a next step in that relationship? Well, let's get some ideas. Using the Old Testament to share Yeshua with your Jewish friend? You better believe it. Dr. Michael Rydelnik has written the Moody Handbook of Messianic Prophecy. Give us an example of of a passage that we could use in sharing Yeshua. Sure. Well, I I just want to say, I didn't write it. I edited it. All right, fair enough. And I wrote a lot of it, okay. but I didn't write the whole thing. Love it's the a, honesty. Yeah, but it's it's uh, great scholars who came together to write this wonderful book. I'm so grateful for them. I think that one of the key passages that I would point to is 
uh, that Moses was unique as a prophet of Israel. It says that in Numbers chapter 12, 6 through 8, it talks about how he alone among all the prophets would speak to God face to face. And then you come to Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 19, and twice it promises that there would be a prophet like Moses who would speak to God face to face. And at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, which I think, you know, it's obviously written after Moses' life because it says, uh, it talks about Moses' burial. So that was added to the Pentateuch. I think Moses wrote everything from Genesis 1 through Deuteronomy 32. But 33 and 34 says that they were added after his death. And who added them? Well, you know, some people say Joshua. Uh, Many scholars have said that it was Ezra who did the final form. And right there in Deuteronomy 34, he says, since then, and if it was Ezra, think about this. This is at the end of the whole Old Testament period now. It says, since then, no prophet has arisen like Moses who spoke to God face to face. There's only been one prophet like Moses who spoke to God face to face, and that is Jesus, the Messiah of Israel. Dr. Michael Rydell, professor of Jewish studies at Moody Bible Institute. Elizabeth, Lydia, Mary, Priscilla, Sapphira, their names are splashed across the pages of your Bible, but how well do we really know them? Phyllis LePoe wants us to get to know them better. That's why some years ago she created the InterVarsity Press Life Guide Women of the New Testament. Phyllis worked with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship for over two decades in St. Louis and the Chicago metro area. She's the author or co-author of several Bible study guides, including Ephesians, Women of the New Testament, and Grandparenting in the Life Guide Bible Study series. She and her husband, Andy, have four married children and 13 grandchildren. It's a pleasure to welcome you, Phyllis, to The Land and the Book. Thank you, John. And let me correct that. We have, it's 14 now because we are, one of our, our youngest son is adopting another child and that oh. has become official. So we're very grateful for that. And we're very happy to be updated. Thank you. You've written women in the New Testament are as diverse as women today. I love getting to know them. Let me stop you right there. First, is it possible that maybe we sort of lump them all together and in so doing missed much of their true stories? You know, these are women of the Bible, boom, boom, end of story. Yeah, it certainly is. And they are so different. And I think one way of lumping them is people, some that think that the Bible is anti-women. And it's really not the case. We see women in the New Testament who have done wonderful things, have great relationships with God, and we've seen women that are being held responsible for their bitterness and their lack of obedience. And so, I, yes, I think they are lumped, and yes, they should not be. I think we also might be guilty of painting the women of the New Testament with one drab, long-ago, grayish color, as if their lives, their stories didn't vary all that much. How do you react? Oh, again, very, very different. I think about Elizabeth, and the whole neighborhood was affected by what happened in hers and Zechariah's life as, as God answered prayer and gave them a child. And there was celebration. It wasn't just the family, but the whole community was affected by it. And Mary, in her quiet way of obeying God, and yet what it probably cost her as a young teenager, pregnant, not married, and uh, just all kinds. And then there's, of course, Herodias, lied, bitter, and demanded John's head, all different varieties of women. Yeah. Good examples and warnings on how not to live. 
Phyllis LePoe is the author of several Bible study guides, including Ephesians, Women of the New Testament, and Grandparenting in the Life Guide Bible Studies series. We're talking today about women in the New Testament. Uh, you've already commented that the Bible is sometimes accused as being anti-women, and uh, that's not what we see as, as we look at women in the New Testament. Okay, so what do you see, Phyllis, as you read through Scripture? I see women being honored. I see women as partners of Paul in ministry. I see women who Jesus paid attention to that everyone else ignored, that he honored. And she's not even in this. She didn't make it in, but the, the woman at the well and his stopping to honor her and to ask her questions and to ask her for help. And yeah, I see women blessed and uh, using their gifts and being honored by Jesus, by Paul, by others. You know, it's fascinating. Uh, for some reason, you know, we call ourselves students of the Scripture, and yet we make very little to do of the fact that Jesus' ministry was financed in part, significant part, by women. Yeah. He allowed them to follow him around and to serve him, take care of him, yes. And the other thing is, in the old, because it was a period of time when women were not honored by the general culture, and the fact that it was women that found the empty tomb and women that took the story back to the disciples and a thing that would never have been used if it were not a true story. They would never use and put women in the part of carrying the story, but they did and they were used, yes. Let's talk about the format of uh, your Bible study. And let me offer one quick reaction. Every chapter, and you've devoted one chapter for each Bible character, features 12 and only 12 questions. Now, I like that. I'm a guy. I don't know. Maybe I'm... To me, it, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's enough to get us digging and thinking deeper without overwhelming us. Your thoughts? Yeah. And that's one of the principles of the life guides. I, I really... I've written a bunch of life guides. I really enjoy them. And that's one part of not making too many questions so that if you're doing it personally, as you said, it's not overwhelming. There's time to think about it. It's We encourage even writing out responses. But in a group, it's a study that can be used and covered in about an hour's time mm -hmm. with that amount of questions and yet not rushing through and allowing. Um, part of the a life guide is application questions, which are really important, not just learning what the scriptures say, but how does it apply to my life and what steps can I can I take in it? A part of the format is also a now or later at the end of the study, ways of continuing to interact with hmm. the application of, of the passage. Good. Let's talk about one of your favorite characters in the study, Elizabeth. What uh, draws you to her? Well, first of all, there, even there, you see her honored as a woman of faith that believed God, even when Zechariah was very skeptical and ended up being speechless, was kind of cursed by the, the angel for not believing. And again, the true miracle, the excitement, the fact I, I love evangelism personally, and the fact that, again, the whole community was affected by what went on in Elizabeth and Zachariah's life since he was a priest. And the fact I also, I think it was a story of community when Mary found out that she was pregnant with Jesus and then going to this woman that meant so much to her and the relationship that they had mm -hmm. and the fact that um, we don't do this Christian thing alone. We really, really do need friendship, prayer partners, community. And so 
she, I just like her. I just like her. <laughs> all right, you don't have to have a reason. We're, we're good with that. Uh, you know, it's not all warm and fuzzy, folks, in this Bible study, though. You have uh, yeah. subtitled the study on Sapphira as dishonest to God. Give us some insights here. Yeah, well, the fact was, uh, it's, it's so strange. Uh, for, well, again, I love the honesty in general, not just about women in the New Testament, that, well, in the whole Bible, that God, the Holy Spirit, as he directed people to write, did not hide flaws. And so here we have a healthy, exhilarating early church that's caught onto the gospel and the resurrection and taking care of each other. Nobody wanted anything. It was needed anything. Not that they didn't want anything, but need anything. And then here comes along this couple that did not have to sell their property. They did not have to give it all, but they lied hmm. and how... I mean, their deaths demonstrate how dishonesty with God, how distasteful it is to God to even take their lives for not telling the truth. Yeah, it's a very sobering story. and uh, It is. You, you didn't leave it out, and we thank you. <laughs> then, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the church was sobered by it. Yeah. And the church was terrified by seeing God act in that way. And Yeah, and then we have Yodia and Syntyche, women in conflict. Not a fun study, but conflict in life is real, Phyllis. What do these women teach us? Well, the fact that Paul addressed that in his letter uh, showed that, A, they were important to him. He didn't just push them aside as gossipy women that can't get along and it doesn't matter. They had worked by his side. They were partners in the gospel. And what harms the church more today? unresolved conflict. Mm. And so the importance of the women, but the importance of the fact of conflict being settled. And again, this healthy, good church being affected by women that couldn't get along. And he's saying, let's deal with it. Women in the New Testament. That's our conversation today on The Land and the Book with Phyllis LePoe. Lydia is a fascinating character, a businesswoman turns to Christ. What uh, impressed you as you began exploring her life? Well, with her, it was, in general, what I call it, I think I call it in the study, the principles of evangelism. The fact that the Holy Spirit had a person ready to hear the gospel and ready to respond. I just almost teary and think about the, the way the Holy Spirit goes ahead of us and prepares hearts. And then Paul going in one direction and thinking that he is, and having the door closed, and he didn't fight it, and having the door closed until finally he got the call. And so the fact that as we're used in people's lives, it's the Holy Spirit's work, and we can relax. Hmm. So that's it. And then, of course, Lydia, being a leader, again, a woman that is honored, she follows Jesus. She immediately offers hospitality at her house as a church, and we see Christian discipleship right away. Let's focus for a moment on Priscilla, whom you call a partner in leadership. What do you mean by that? A partner with whom, and how did she lead? Well, that study was probably influenced by the fact that I love partnering with my husband, Andy, in ministry, whether we're leading a Bible study in the neighborhood or whether we're teaching um, an adult ed class at church or whether we are, we both have been campus ministers within a varsity, as you mentioned at the beginning, and whether we're at a week of chapter focus week leading students through the first half of Mark in 20 hours. I love it. I love prepping with him. I love praying with him. 
I love learning from him. And so it was very natural thing to pick out a couple like Priscilla and Aquila to see the effectiveness of a married couple working together and serving together. I love it. (laughs) For an example, in Persevering in Prayer, you introduce us to the Canaanite woman. What draws you to her and what life lessons might we take away from this study? You know what? Every time I read that, I kind of shake my head and think, Jesus, what were you doing? And I think as, I think there's a note in the, in the leader's note that one of the commentaries said that he probably had tongue-in-cheek, maybe a smile on his face, but he just seems so disrespectful to her and talking about, I mean, really calling her a dog. Why should I give to you what my people in Israel need? But the fact that she stayed, she took it, she acknowledged it. She believed that he was the Jewish Messiah, and she continued, and he honored her faith. So I think it was just her persistence and her believing Jesus, and probably she understood Jesus more than I do as I look on (laughs) watching that interaction. In 30 seconds, what's your encouragement to a woman who says, I'm not sure I can make that much of a difference in, in my church, in my ministry? How would you encourage her? God loves you. He has a plan for your life. He has promised you that he has given you works to do, that he has prepared for you to do. He has promised to work through you. Enjoy being yourself. And there are, I think one of the things I'm learning is that the small things count as much as the big things like Mm. taking cookies to a sick neighbor as well as sharing Jesus and building relationships. We can all build relationships with non-Christians and love them and tell people what Jesus has done for us. Great insights today from Phyllis LePoe, who's written Women of the New Testament, a great study from InterVarsity Press. Check it out. A link at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Charlie's up next. You don't want to miss his answers to your questions here on The Land and the Book. Thanks for hanging out with us here at The Land and the Book. It's segment three, questions and answers. Dr. Charlie Dyer, our host, is ready with a stack of great questions from listeners like you. And I'm John Gager, as curious as you are, both to what those questions are and how Charlie's going to answer. Let's get right to our uh, fresh set today with Alan's question. What is your take on the recent article about a 2,700-year-old Bible fragment found in Israel, Charlie? Yeah, and for those who may not remember this, uh, the fragment supposedly was an early version of the book of Deuteronomy. Now, I'm not absolutely sure what to think, but I do have two concerns about this so-called discovery. Uh, The first is, we don't actually have the manuscript. Uh, We only have a copy of it. The original has been lost or is in some private collection somewhere, uh, so we really can't test it to know if it's genuine or if it was a forgery. And the fact that the person who claimed to have discovered it almost a century ago dealt in forgeries, uh, well, that caused scholars in the late 19th century to dismiss this one as a forgery. Uh, Second, the manuscript that was supposedly discovered would suggest uh, the book of Deuteronomy in our Bibles is inaccurate. The manuscript apparently left out large sections of the book, and those who accept its authenticity are suggesting it preserves the original manuscript which they believe was written around the time of King Josiah and Jeremiah, and that the book in our Bible today contains many late editions. 
Now, I see an evolutionary bias in those assumptions. They assume, first, that Moses didn't write the Pentateuch. They assume a less complex book like these scroll fragments must have existed prior to a more complex book like the book of Deuteronomy. Now, the fact that the fragments were supposedly discovered by Bedouin shepherds in caves is what made the comparison to the Dead Sea Scrolls so significant. But these pieces were said to have been uncovered on the east side of the Dead Sea, uh, not on the west side. The Dead Sea Scrolls were uncovered on the west side in Qumran. And while the Dead Sea Scrolls date back to uh, between the 3rd century BC and the 1st century AD, these scrolls supposedly date back to the 8th century BC. Uh, that's quite a long time for a piece of parchment to survive. That's 400 years earlier than the earliest Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, the ultimate solution to all this would be for those fragments to reappear so they could be properly studied. But I'm not sure that's going to happen anytime soon. And that's what makes me very skeptical about them. Cynthia says, I'm confused about who the people are that live during the 1,000-year reign mentioned in Revelation. If the rapture takes place before that time, will raptured Christians be there? Yeah, well, we know at the rapture, the church-age believers who've died will be resurrected. Those of us still alive are caught up in the air to meet with them and to meet the Lord, and we'll be with Him forever. Uh, we're in glorified bodies from that time on, and since uh, we're with the Lord forever, well, we can assume when Jesus returns to earth at the start of the millennium, we return with Him. Uh, in 2 Timothy 2, Paul says we'll reign with Him. So I take that to mean that we'll have positions of authority in the millennial kingdom. We also know at the start of the millennium, Old Testament saints are going to be raised. Uh, Daniel 12, 2 says that. And those who are martyred during the tribulation are going to be raised. Uh, Revelation 20, verse 4 says that. Uh, they'll all be in glorified bodies. Now, there's one final group I do need to mention. There will be people saved and lost who will survive through the tribulation period. In Matthew 24 to 25, Jesus describes that period, and then he gives a couple parables. He has the parable of the ten virgins. That's a reminder of the Jewish people who were alive during that period to keep watch. Uh, those who are ready will be allowed into the banquet hall, which is a symbol of the millennium. Those who aren't are kept out. And then he describes the judgment of the sheep and goats. The sheep who represent the saved Gentiles during that period are allowed into the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world, is what Jesus says. Now, I put all that together, and what it tells me is when the millennium begins, there's going to be a lot of people there in glorified bodies, all the Old Testament and church-age saints and those martyred during the tribulation. But there are also going to be people there who are in natural bodies. And as the thousand-year period goes on, those in natural bodies will marry and have children, so the population will grow exponentially. Hong Chan takes us to Psalm 90, verse 10, which says our lives last 70 years, or if we're strong, 80 years. Should we interpret that passage literally? Because I interpret that passage literally, I feel that man's lifespan has not increased dramatically. Uh, but what are your thoughts? Yeah, and in regard to Psalm 90, I take the passage in a literal sense as well. In Moses' day, just like in our day, the average lifespan of an individual was around 70 or 80 years. Now, some, like Moses, lived longer, while others died in infancy or as young adults. But in general, the lifespan for most people was 70 to 80 years. And if you read the obituaries in the local paper today, you discover that the average age of those who die is somewhere around 70 or 80. Now, if there is a difference, it's that less people today die at birth or as young children. That has increased the, quote, average lifespan over the centuries. But the expiration date on these bodies we now have really hasn't changed much over time. Psalm 90 is accurate. 
Our next question takes us to 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 35 and 36. God announces that he will take 10 tribes of the kingdom of Israel and give them to Jeroboam. God then says he will give one tribe to Rehoboam. This passage totals 11 tribes, not 12. Is the total 11 tribes because Levites are not included? Or does the passage mean the southern kingdom consists of Judah and one additional tribe? If so, is that other tribe Benjamin? Just wondering why it does not state 10 tribes to Jeroboam and two tribes to Rehoboam. Yeah, this issue is a bit complex. Uh, The two tribes were left to Solomon's descendants, and I believe they were actually Judah and Simeon. I don't think the second tribe with Judah was Levi because Levi wasn't actually given a separate tribal allotment. When the land was allotted to the different tribes, Simeon's inheritance, it says, lay within the territory of Judah in Joshua 19. So the tribe of Simeon would have been included in with Judah. Uh, It's interesting that uh, you also mentioned Benjamin because very shortly after the division of the kingdom, Benjamin also became associated with the southern kingdom of Judah. Evidently, the area of Benjamin was contested because a little bit later, Basha, king of Israel, invaded the territory of Benjamin and fortified the key town of Ramah, it says uh, in 1 Kings 15. Asa, king of Judah, sent a bribe to the king of Aram up in Damascus to attack the northern region of Israel. That forced Basha to pull his forces out of Ramah. Asa then fortified Geba and Mitzpah to guard the area of Benjamin from further attack. Now, some actually call that the battle for Benjamin. But once it was over, the territory of Benjamin was definitely under Judah's control. So eventually, the kingdom of Judah included three tribes, Judah, Simeon, and Benjamin. Great to be connecting with you today on The Land and the Book with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger, and we're working our way through your questions, emailed questions that come to us at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Ricardo says, I read a commentary that said when angels sinned, God did not let them go free without punishment. He sent them to hell and put them in caves of darkness where they are being held for judgment. Does this mean anyone who goes to hell will be there until judgment day? So while they're in hell, they're not suffering until judgment day, or are they already suffering? And why wait until judgment day? If they did not accept Jesus as their Savior, then they should live in hell always. Are they going to have a chance on judgment day to be forgiven and go to heaven? A lot of different questions wrapped up in there, so let me try and unpack them all. Uh, Not all angels who sinned are currently being punished. Satan led the angelic rebellion against God. He was cast out of his position in heaven, but he still has limited access to God. Uh, Job 1 and 2 describe that. The book of Jude does tell us that some angels did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper abode. Uh, Those angels, it says, are bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. Now, we're not sure what these particular angels did that caused them to be judged immediately, but some believe they're the sons of God who cohabited with women in Genesis 6-2. Now, I tend to agree, but we can't say for sure. Uh, But we do know the lake of fire has been prepared as the final place of judgment for all fallen angels. Uh, In Matthew 25, Jesus sends the unsaved at that point to the lake of fire, it says, prepared for the devil and his angels. Uh, The lake of fire is the final destination for the unsaved of all ages as well. Now, in terms of what happens to unbelievers when they die, we don't have a lot of details. But I think Jesus gave us a good picture of what happens when he gave the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. Though it is a parable, 
I still think it's based on the reality of what happens when people die. In the story, Lazarus the beggar went to a place of blessing, uh, and it's also a place where Abraham was, which suggests it's a place of blessing for the uh, believers in all ages. The rich man, however, found himself in Hades, and it says he was in torment. Now, that tells me the unsaved go to a place of torment at the moment of death. Now, why wouldn't God send wicked angels and, and the unsaved immediately into the lake of fire? Well, we're not told, but I suspect one reason for the angels is that there's a larger cosmic conflict going on that still needs to unfold. Uh, Revelation 12 describes a still future battle in heaven between Satan and his allies and the angels loyal to God. So God has a program and a plan for angels, just like he does for humanity, and he's allowing fallen angels to remain around until that program's complete. And when it comes to humans, God also has them in a temporary place of judgment when they die until the great white throne. Uh, that's when they'll be forced to stand before God and watch as he turns his gaze on all they've done. But God's going to demonstrate he's absolutely righteous in condemning angels or humans to the lake of fire. And the other last point, there is no chance to repent after death. Uh, we only have that opportunity before death. There's appointed unto man once to die, and after that comes the judgment. Charlie's devotional is next on The Land and the Book. So what kind of a person are you, on time or usually a little late? There are two kinds of people in this world, and we usually fall into one of those categories. Well, you've heard that God is always right on time. Coming up here on The Land of the Book, Dr. Charlie Dyer gives us biblical evidence from John chapter 11. But first, let's take a visit to the land of Israel through the eyes of someone who's been there. Hi, I'm Steve, and my most memorable Holy Land experience was uh, our time on the Galilean boat, being away from the hustle and bustle of the crowds of fellow Holy Land pilgrims. I felt like I was in a place where our Lord was 2,000 years ago, gazing at the shores of the Sea of Galilee where Jesus ministered, singing with our group, and feeling the presence of the Holy Spirit was a memory I'll never forget. My name is Jim, and I think that the impression that I've always had of the Lord Jesus Christ traveling the Holy Land and the reality of it as we have experienced it for three years, tracing the hillsides, transversing the water. I just cannot imagine the Lord Jesus Christ and his disciples covering that much ground in them three years. It just is amazing. Nothing like hearing it first person from someone who's been there, how that trip to the Holy Land changes a life. This is the land of the book, and on this fourth segment, Charlie Dyer opens his Bible, brings us a devotional, and Charlie, I know you well enough to know, have traveled with you well enough to know that you are very much an on-time kind of person. Others, not so, and you often encounter those on your trips over there as well. Uh, we do, and uh, it's my internal mechanism. I hate being late. Yeah. You know, my idea of being on time is showing up for an event about a half hour before it begins. <laughs> yeah, I actually trace that back to my boyhood days in northeastern Pennsylvania. Our church service began at 8.30 in the morning, but by 8 o'clock, virtually everyone was at the church. Hmm. I also worked several summers at a local nursery. We started the day at 8 a.m., but starting meant being on the truck, tools loaded, ready to go. The workers were expected to arrive about 20 to 30 minutes early. 
I'm still a fanatic when it comes to showing up early. To be early is to be on time. And that's why I find the events of John 11 to be so fascinating and disturbing all at the same time. This is the chapter where Jesus appears to be unfashionably late. To understand what I mean, let's hike over the Mount of Olives to the village of Bethany, where our story begins. Bethany's nestled on the eastern slopes of the Mount of Olives, about two miles from Jerusalem, along the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Just beyond Bethany is the Judean wilderness, an area of barren, rock-strewn hills scarred by deep cliffs. In Jesus' day, the land was deserted, desolate, and dangerous. His parable of the Good Samaritan was based on the reality that the road through this wilderness to Jericho wasn't always safe for travelers. And yet, as we walk down the steep roadway toward Bethany, we see a lone figure leaving the village and heading away from us toward the wilderness and Jericho. And the puffs of dust being kicked up behind him tell us he's in a hurry. The rocky hills of the wilderness will soon slow his pace, but for now, he's a man on a mission. But where and why? We discover the answer as we near the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Rushing from the cistern toward the house is Martha, carrying a clay jar, the water splashing out as she races toward the doorway. We follow her inside and find ourselves in a first-century emergency room. Lazarus lies curled up on a pallet, a blanket wrapped around his shivering frame, his face pale, his eyes closed, his breath coming in short, shallow gasps. Mary is beside him, wiping his fevered brow with a damp cloth while whispering into his ear, Lazarus, don't give up. We've sent for the master. Stay with us till he comes. Mary looks up at Martha and their eyes lock, each hoping to draw strength from the other, but both realize it's probably too late. Their brother is dying. Minute by minute, his breath is growing more labored, his strength ebbing away, his skin turning an ashen gray. Their only hope is the slim possibility that Jesus can be found and can return in time to help. That's why they sent the messenger to find him. Who was the messenger? What was his message and where was he going? Was he a servant or perhaps a friend or neighbor? We don't know. His name isn't important but his destination and his message were. He was sent by Mary and Martha to find Jesus and to tell him, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. He was sent to find the great physician to let him know they needed his help. But how would the messenger even know where to find Jesus? Well, the last few verses in John 10 provide the answer. Jesus had withdrawn beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing and he was staying there. And according to John 1.28, John the Baptist had been baptizing at Bethany beyond the Jordan, though some translations identify it as Bethabara. But whether its name was Bethany or Bethabara, we know where it was located, just to the east of Jericho, on the other side of the Jordan River. Sadly, the messenger was too late. Lazarus died before the messenger even made it to Jericho. But he had no way of knowing his journey was in vain. Even as he hurried to cross the Jordan and find Jesus, Lazarus' body was being washed, wrapped, and placed in the family tomb. It would have taken the messenger almost an entire day to travel from the home of Mary and Martha to the place where Jesus was staying. He didn't know Lazarus was already dead when he finally found Jesus and delivered the message. 
but I'm sure he was surprised by Jesus' response. Rather than agreeing to leave immediately, Jesus decided to stay two days longer in the place where he was. Jesus didn't begin his journey to Bethany until the fourth day, after Mary and Martha had sent for him, and it would have taken most of that day to make the trip. It must have been late afternoon on the fourth day when Jesus finally arrived in Bethany. So when Jesus came, John records, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. When Jesus met Martha and Mary, they both had the same initial response. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. The harsh reality of the situation again hit home. Perhaps the messenger had returned two days earlier with Jesus' perplexing answer. No, Jesus wasn't following right behind. He seemed unconcerned about Lazarus's condition and planned to stay at the Jordan a little while longer. But in any case, it didn't matter because Lazarus had died before Jesus even received word that he'd been ill. The delay was puzzling, but even if he had come immediately, he would still have been too late. Much truth is compressed in Jesus' words to Martha and Mary, but note what Jesus does when he reaches Lazarus' tomb. He wept, he prayed, and then he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth! And it became apparent to everyone present that Jesus had indeed arrived right on time. Had Jesus arrived before Lazarus died, or before he had been in the grave that long, then the power and scope of the miracle wouldn't have been as evident. Jesus wasn't just good at healing the sick, or even at raising someone who had just died, like a young girl at Capernaum or a young boy in Nain. He had the ability to unchain death itself, to restore to life someone whose body had already begun to decompose. We find it hard to pull away from the scene in front of us. Mary and Martha tearing away the cloth strips bound around their brother while hugging and kissing him at the same time. Yet, it's time to head back over the Mount of Olives toward home. But what lessons can we carry with us from this time in Bethany? Let me suggest two. First, Remember that God's timetable extends beyond this life. We sometimes live as if God's plans end at death. But the Bible reminds us that even death will someday be swallowed up in the victory God will provide. Maintaining an eternal perspective helps us understand why our labor in the Lord is not in vain. And second, remember that even in this life, God always shows up right on time. It might not be the time we've set, or the schedule we think he should keep. But as Solomon observed, he has made everything appropriate in its time. Just ask Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Thanks, Charlie. Always love your devotionals. And you know, you can hear today's program again online at our website, thelandandthebook.org, where you'll find helpful links to all of our guests. A tab there that'll take you to helpful summaries of past and future programs, plus a link to our Facebook page. That's thelandandthebook.org. And you know, it's always a good idea to email the management at this station. Always a pleasant thing for them to get a note saying how much you appreciate the broadcast, how God has used it uh, in your life. Why not do that today? And you can email us as well if you'd like, thelandandthebook at moody.edu. The Land of the Book is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute. Thanks for listening. 